My name is Jonathan Neef. I'm the campus pastor for Christ Church Vernon Hills. And uh, it's been fun to be here on staff. Been on staff for about two years. My wife and I have got two kids, baby due early December. And we're grateful for this church. Um, a few years ago, this church had the, the vision to, to pray, to start a new church. And I'm, I've been excited to be a part of that process of we launched a new campus in Vernon Hills. It's not what we expected. We didn't expect to launch a campus amidst a global pandemic, right? But it is honestly a lot of fun right now. Uh, we've been meeting in person for the past few weeks. There's an energy, there's an excitement. We really feel like God is using us to reach people and to renew communities. So I wanted to say thank you for the, the part that you play. We are one church, several locations, but it's, it's been a lot of fun. I also have to tell you that honestly, it has not been what I expected, right? Come March, it was a, a very different story. March 22nd was our launch date. Uh, March 15th was our big commissioning service. We had a bunch of people ready to go on stage and be commissioned and prayed for, sent out by the church. March 9th, we signed our lease at the space for a year. And then March 11th, Tom Hanks got COVID and the world shut down. <laughs> and I remember, I, I'm not a, a church planter by personality. I know I probably shouldn't have admitted that, right? But I'm more of a pastor shepherd, pastor teacher. But uh, we brought in and said, hey, we've got the plan. We've got the resources. We've got the plan. If you follow the plan, if you're diligent to execute this, we, we can launch a church. You can do it. And so I've kind of held on to that and we were ready to go and we were following the plan. And then with COVID, the plan went out the window, right? I mean, it's okay, well, we don't know what to do now. And it was a real moment for me of just kind of saying, okay, what do I rely on? Because I've been relying on this plan to see us through, to see this church plant through. And without being able to rely on that anymore, what do I rely on? And then not only with that reliance, there's also a sense of a little bit of, maybe apathy or complacency of like, well, now what? And also lack of vision and clarity. Okay, where are we going? What's this look like? How do we do this? There's not the plan for that. It was a difficult season. I mean, church planting is probably not any different than anything else that you all were doing, right? COVID interrupted. And many of the things that we have been self-reliant on, whether it be our 401k or the schools our kids get to go to or this job or those relationships, suddenly everything has been has been different. What do we rely on? What are, we, what are we trusting in? How do we know it's going to succeed? Right? Those are some of the questions I've been asking. And uh, especially right then for the church plant, I was asking. And interestingly enough, if you've been with us on, on our Sunday morning sermon series, we've been preaching through the book of Revelation. Uh, Jesus has words for seven churches. He's offering critique, not just as an outsider saying, well, you're doing this wrong, but as a loving, loving father, caring for his children, his bride, the church. And as he offers this critique to their final church, the seventh church, the church of Laodicea, one of the things that they were wrestling with was what do they rely on? So we're going to look at that. Our text is going to answer some of those questions, reliance, apathy, complacency, ignorance, and what we trust in and clarity of the vision. A lot of that is here in our text. I'm excited to open that up with you. So let's do that. Well, again, if you've been with us, we're going to turn to Revelation chapter 3, starting in verse 14. And we're going to look at the, uh, the church of Laodicea. And a little bit of background just to get you ready for Laodicea. Um, it says to the angel, of, uh, to the angel or the messenger of the church, of Laodicea. And then here's our picture of the map, right? So we've got our seven churches kind of going in your clockwise manner. And then here's Laodicea. It's about a hundred miles um, away from Ephesus. So a little bit away. It's our last church, our last stop. And uh, some things you should know about Laodicea. 
First of all, it was uh, founded by Antiochus II, who named it after his wife. Probably a good move. Us men, we should maybe take some notes there. Um, and it was known for wealth. And among that wealth, you can kind of see here some of the ruins and the remains, but just, you know, very beautiful, even still today, to have some of those pieces still in place. Known for its wealth, its ability to to handle finances under the Roman Empire. In fact, when there was an earthquake that came through in 61 AD, many of the other places looked for help. This city said, no, we do not need any government assistance. We don't need any help. We can rebuild it ourselves. And they took it as a source of pride that they were able to do that, to to rebuild their own city. So they're uh, located along three major highways. They have a lot of trade that goes on, banks that are there. There's a lot of bankers, traders, millionaires who live in this city. They're known for their wealth. Uh, Something else they were known for was their health, their medicine, their hospitals. Um, Perhaps most famous is that they were known for a substance that they called the uh, phrygium powder. And it was known as something you could put on your eyes to help weak eyes, to help people see better. So they were known for this this ointment, this powder. Um, And then they were also known for... um, power or clothing, the textile industry. A lot of sheep that had wool that was black and they created the, the, the clothing and um, it was really a, just well known and brought them a lot of fame throughout the land. So they're known for their wealth, their health, their power. And then maybe the last thing is their water supply. Got a picture here of uh, the aqueducts that kind of went through. They did not have a very good um, water supply for themselves water was difficult for them to come by amidst all the other things they had. So of course they had these nice aqueducts and they went six miles away to the town of Hierapolis and there they had hot springs. So the hot water would travel from Hierapolis and it would come down the six miles along these aqueducts and travel down to the city. And by the time it got to the city, it was usually a bit of a tepid, lukewarm flavor. And the people didn't appreciate their water supply because it was just kind of gross to the mouth when you first tried it. You had to let it sit for a while because it wasn't a good temperature. So there were some hot springs close by where they got their water supply. Uh, There was also another town, Colossae, which you might be familiar with, the book of Colossians, and they were known for for their cold water. And so there's water supplies nearby, but not at our place at Laodicea. Hopefully that little background is helpful to you. Let's now turn to our text, starting in verse 14, and we'll take a look at what it has to say. It says, To the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. We should be familiar with this intro to the angel. This is what has been in every uh, letter we've had so far. It's talking to the messenger who's written there, right? And so it says to, to the church of Laodicea, we've discussed the Laodicean background. And now we have these three titles, right? Titles um, given of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, and the beginning of God's creation. All three of these titles are actually associated with Jesus, right? Amen means to be as truly or so be it. Um, It's an expression. It's used as a title for God here. It's also used in Isaiah chapter 65. Again, a lot of these letters pull back and go to the book of Isaiah or an Old Testament reference pointing to Jesus. So we're saying Jesus is, back to the Old Testament, Jesus is true. And then faithful and true witness, what Jesus says, he's a witness, he is testifying to the church. It is true, he tells the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth. And then the beginning of God's creation. Some have, you know, kind of wrongly taken this and said, oh, he was created and, you know, we worked through that, right, in ancient church history. No, looking at the context, he is the creator. He is uh, 
Lord over all of the created things. So a little bit of background, some titles for Jesus, talking about his character, who he is. Let's continue on along in our text. I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. All right, now, judging on this a little bit, hopefully the background helps set you up for this a little bit. I know your works. There's some intimacy there. God knows them. He knows the works that they do. Again, this is written to a Christian audience. It's written to the local church. He knows the works, what, what they're doing, right? How they're engaging in service to the poor, visiting widows and orphans. He knows the works that they're doing, but they're not hot or cold. Now, growing up as a kid, I often heard, oh, well, this, this, this verse talking about hot or cold is talking about, well, you want to be hot for, you know, hot water. You don't want to be cold water. Um, and you certainly don't want to be lukewarm, right? The coming up verses. But actually what we see is the hot water is of sort of healing water, which came from Hierapolis. They also could have been a cold, refreshing water from the city of Colossae. But the problem is they're neither hot nor are they cold. They're lacking in both. And what are they? They're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold. I will spit you out of your mouth, out of my mouth. Right? There's the, the context here kind of clarifies this for us, right? Just like they received water from their aqueduct that was gross. When you, when you tried to drink it, you had to wait a while because it was just, you wanted to spit it back out, this terrible temperature. God is saying, just as you receive your water, that is how I feel about you and your good works. It's quite the harsh rebuke, right? Lukewarm, I want to spit you out of my mouth. You're not useful to me with your good works that are hot. You're not useful to me like the, the cold works that are also helpful. You're just this lukewarm, useless works. So maybe the question kind of becomes, well, why is Jesus so mad? Right? I mean, we've looked at a lot of churches so far, and this is one of the few churches that he doesn't give some compliments to as he jumps into the letter. He doesn't say, hey, I know your works. Here's some good things. He just jumps into, I know your works, and I want to spit you out. So why the negative rebuke? I mean, he's not mad at them because they've abandoned their first love or because they've committed idolatry or because they believed in false doctrine or because they've even compromised with morality, committing sexual immorality. He's not mad at them for any of that. So what is it here? Well, the first clue we have, there's three things. The first one is that they're lukewarm. Lukewarm. What, do we, what does he mean by lukewarm? Well, it's, it's an apathy. It's a complacency. They're, they're self-satisfied. They are self-reliant, right? Again, it goes back to their water supply. Even, even just pausing here for a moment. Okay, true for the church of Laodicea. He's mad at them for their complacency. Where in our own lives, taking it, the, the original meeting to the original audience, now applying it to ourselves, the church, where have we possibly grown lukewarm? Where is it that we're doing good works, but without any emotion behind it, without any desire and intensity behind it? It's the first rebuke that Jesus gives. Well, continuing along, he says, um, you've been lukewarm, and I say, you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing. Not realizing that you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, naked. Right? Quite the list. Well, the next two things that we see, he gets mad at them for being lukewarm. He gets mad at them for being self-reliant. They say, I need nothing. They think that they've got it all. <laughs> they assume that because they are material wealthy, that they are spiritually rich as well, 
right? They assume that their wealth was due to their own inherent superiority. They think that God blesses them and, and their earthly wealth and that they're, but that's what they think they have, but really they're spiritually bankrupt. They're self-reliant. Even going back to where I felt like with the church, I was reliant on, during the church plan, I was reliant upon the plan. I was depending upon this. What are they relying on? They're relying upon their own wealth, their own success, their health, their power. But really they're spiritually bankrupt and God's calling it out. So they're lukewarm, they're self-reliant, they need nothing. And then the next phrase is not realizing, right? They are ignorant of their own true state, right? How sad. They think that they are blessed, but really they're wretched. They think that they should be envied, but really the text says they should be pitied. They think that they're rich, but really they're spiritually poor. They think they see things clearly, but he says that they're blind. They think that they are clothed in good works and good deeds. And he says, no, you're naked and ashamed. This is quite the rebuke. Right? The church at Laodicea, Laodicea, they relied upon their wealth, they relied upon their health, they relied upon their power and their success, and they assumed that because they had all that, they didn't have any other needs, and they grew apathetic, they grew lukewarm in their walk with God, and then they were blind to the fact they were going the wrong way. Well, I can, I can think of, you know, a couple examples in my own life where this has been true. One was, again, that church planting, like starting to think, okay, I've got the plan. We're, we're doing fine as long as I follow the plan. And then the plan was taken out from under me. And it's like, what am I relying upon now? I've been relying upon the wrong, wrong things instead of God. And there became about a little bit of an apathy and a lack of clarity. And I was blind to what was going on. But I also remember, you know, thinking of, the, of this, I can remember finances in college, right? If you, if you were to talk to me now, um, Praise the Lord. There's some financial security. Uh, there's money in the bank. There's a, a, right, an emergency fund. If something happens, you know, there's a little bit of a security blanket. I can trust in, those, in that wealth instead of trusting in the Lord. Which isn't all bad to be wise and have those pieces, but it's where are you putting your trust? I remember that's when I was in college, I was completely dependent upon God, right? I needed him for all of that provision, I got married with $26.48. Probably a reason why my wife should not have married me, but that's where I was. And I got married right after college. And during that last semester, I was trying to pay for school. And I remember the Lord providing through different opportunities, but I was just so desperate on my face, praying to him, asking that he would provide, looking to him, relying upon him. And he did through the form of, of a job that I had ongoing, but then a couple unique jobs to earn some money. I sold my truck one, for one payment. I sold my drum set and some other equipment, another payment. I remember getting down to my last payment, having nothing left to, left to sell, already working all that I could work and feeling like I was still short of money and laying there and praying, dependent upon God. And somebody put money underneath my door and I heard them as I'm praying. And I walk over there and look in the envelope and there's the exact amount that I was short. I opened up the door quickly and couldn't see anybody. But I remember thinking like, wow, in my dependency, dependency upon God, he's provided. What a gift that was. Also, how different it is for me now. Maybe I'm going to pause and ask you, what do you, look on, what do you look to to rely upon? Where are you putting your trust? And even with COVID shaking some things up, where is it now? Where's your hope? Where's your trust, your reliance, your dependency? Again, is it in 401k? Is it in relationships? Is it in a job? Is it in a good school for your children? All these things are disrupted. As are, are we relying upon the right things? The church at Laodicea was not. Okay, so the church at Laodicea was relying upon the wrong things. Where did they go from here? What does the text continue to say? God doesn't leave them there. He gives them some next steps. He says, I counsel you. 
to buy for me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich. A little bit of irony that they need to buy gold from him, right? Refined by fire so that you may be rich. They already thought that they were rich. But interesting also, this is a currency that they don't have. They can't actually buy this gold on their own because this gold is meant to be symbolic of the refining work that God does in our lives spiritually. You can't get this gold on your own. Buy it from me, from a currency you don't have. They're dependent upon God's grace to get there. They thought they had spiritual wealth, but really they were bankrupt. So he's telling them, buy gold from me. And white garments, so that you may clothe yourself. Again, white garments, they were the producers of textiles and wool that were this black wool that was rich. They already thought they had this. They thought they were already well clothed. He's saying, no, you aren't. Buy from me these these white garments. You may clothe yourself. And 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 clothe yourself and clothe the shame of your nakedness that it may not be seen. And then, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Again, Jesus is calling them out. Remember earlier, what are they known for? The powder to help them see better. And he's saying, you don't see. And you actually need a salve that I provide, not the one that you have, so that you can see more clearly, right? Do you notice all of these ways? He keeps pointing out the areas where they thought they had confidence, where they were trusting and relying in these things. He's saying, you're relying in the wrong things. You need to rely on me. Their spiritual inadequacy in this community is to be redressed by gifts that only God can give. It's the gospel, right? You can't earn it. You can't do it yourselves. There's no way you can have enough wealth, health, or power. You can only look to God to be the one who provides for you. And you approach that in meekness and humility. All right, so he says that, and then he keeps going in, verse, in the next verse. Verse 19. To whom I love, I, repu- I reprove and discipline So be zealous and repent. To whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Be zealous and repent. I love this because God told us what to do earlier. Now he's telling us how to do it. How do we get that spiritual currency? How do we get those things that God was saying that we needed? Be zealous and repent. Let's begin with what God does. God says, to those whom I love, I discipline. Notice the context of relationship. There is love there. Even as the letter began with, I know your works. I love you. I know you. That is why I discipline you. So often we think of discipline as a punishment, just there to hurt us. But what we see here in this text clearly is this discipline is done out of love. They're blind. They're relying on the wrong things. They're apathetic in their walk. They've grown complacent. God has to call them out. He has to wake them up. He has to say, you're pursuing the wrong things. I love you. That's why I care enough to say something. I can't let you just keep drifting. So often when we hear that, we want to hide. We want to suppress the truth. We want to deny it. But Jesus already knows us. He knows our works. He calls it out. I mean, perhaps the best analogy that I have right now is just, this is is the type of discipline that I'm giving to my son. Right? I've got a three-year-old daughter. I've got an 18-month-year-old son. And as I interact with him, I mean, he's, he's wonderful. He loves to cuddle, but he has this issue where he loves to bite. I don't know where he picked it up. Don't know why that's his thing. I'm sure it has something to do with teething, but he, he's snuggling with you. And next thing you know, it's like, oh, he bites you. And it's usually a surprise and he draws blood and there's bruising. It's not fun. He bites his sister. He bites his mommy. He bites his daddy, right? And when he does that, it hurts the relationship, right? There's consequences for his actions. We've got to do some discipline. There has to be a a timeout. And as we remove him from from the relationship, right, helping him see there's a consequence for his actions, we also then go back. The discipline occurs, but then we go back 
and I have him say sorry in sign language, and he doesn't, he doesn't mean it, right? But he's learning. We're giving him the tools of an outward expression to hopefully express an inward reality that will one day be there of repentance, right? And as he says, I'm sorry, I pick him back up. I say, I love you. I, I want to hold you, right? I forgive you. The relationship is restored, right? That is how God disciplines us. He's pointing out to this church, I'm disciplining you out of love. I need you to wake up. I need you to pursue me. And so what is our role? God does. God says he loves and he disciplines. Our role, well, we're to be zealous and repent. And I love this word zealous. If you're looking at the, the text, the original word there for the zealous is actually boiling water. Boiling water, right? Remember, they, he wants them to be hot or cold, but as the, as the hot springs come from the church of Hierapolis and it come, travels the six miles to get to them and then it's lukewarm, he's saying, don't be lukewarm anymore. Be boiling water, have energy, be zealous, be earnest. Actually engage with your heart in the works that you're doing. Again, this goes back to the works they were doing. It says, I know your works, neither hot nor cold. They're just going through the motions with God. Well, God, I know I'm supposed to go to church, so I do. I'm, I know I'm supposed to tithe, so I do. But I know I'm supposed to help the needy, the poor, I do. But their heart isn't in it. And God's saying, I want your heart to be involved. I want you to be zealous. I want you to be boiling water. I want energy and passion and emotion to be involved. Don't just love me with your mind. Love me with your heart, right? That's what he's calling for them to do. And one of the ways they do that is through repentance. Repentance is changing the way they're doing and going the opposite direction, doing it, the, doing it the right way. So actual change, go from being lukewarm to being boiling water, be on fire, love, right? Actually pursue God. So God disciplines and he does that, hoping that we can respond with love and affection and energy and passion and being zealous. He wants to teach us to be dependent and desperate on him, not on ourselves, our health, our wealth, or the other pieces. He wants us to look to him. So maybe even application, pulling it back for us just for a minute, right? So God wants, what does he want from us? Well, he wants us to receive the discipline he's offering. And he wants us to remember the love that he has for us. He wants us to repent of the complacency we're in and be resolved to be zealous, right? The church at Laodicea, they were complacent. They were apathetic. They were lukewarm. They relied upon themselves. They thought their riches, their success, their fame had them in a good place. They were ambivalent toward change and they were ignorant that they needed to make that change. Right? How sad. So how do we combat some of those things looking now to apply it to ourselves? What is it some of the things that we need to do? Well, how do you com combat being self-reliant and learn to be reliant on the Lord? One of the tools God has given us is, are the spiritual disciplines, Right? So maybe for example, fasting. <laughs> when I fast, I go from being reliant upon myself to being rely, reliant upon the Lord, right? Or maybe it's giving. I go from depending and looking to my own wealth to be, to be secure and, and trusting in him to provide for me. Or it's prayer, because I mean, let's be honest, right? Prayer often, so often feels so useless. It feels like, what am I doing? It's not making a real difference. But God says it changes us and it, and it has effects out in the world. He calls us to it. Being reliant upon him could be like prayer, Bible reading, practicing Sabbath. No longer am I going to be self-reliant on myself and just always work. I'm going to take a break. I'm going to cease. I'm going to delight and pause. I'm going to look to God. He will be the one who provides, not the work that I do. The world will go on without me. So there are spiritual disciplines that we can do to combat self-reliance. How do we combat the ignorance? 
Well, some of that can be done through community. God already has that set up for us. The local church, that's one of the places God has for us to help us see what we can't see. Or we go on Sunday mornings or we, or we worship together in order to worship God, to hear the word proclaimed, to pray together, yes, to worship all those things. But also it's a built-in community to be able to say, hey, you're walking in ignorance here. And sometimes that's more difficult in a large church, but that's the beauty of small groups. One of my challenges for you is for everyone to get in a small group. Because a small group is a place where you are known by others and you can know others and they can speak into your life and say, you're walking in, you're walking in ignorance right now. You're apathetic and you walk to the Lord. You're relying upon yourself and not in God. We see this in you, we're gonna call it out. It's one of the beautiful things God has set up. Okay, so we've, we have some ideas for how we grow in, uh, in our self-reliance. We have ideas on how we grow in our ignorance. How do we grow in zeal? I mean, how often does it really work that you are able to say to yourself, okay, I'm just gonna be, I'm just gonna love God more and here we go, <laughs> right? It, it sounds great, it preaches great, love God more. But will I really do that? Will you really do that? How do we do that? I love it because um, God actually answers that for us in the next verse. How do you grow in your zealousness? How do you grow in your love and affection? How do you grow in your heart longing after God? 320. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. I love this picture here. First, let's talk about the eating together and the coming in and fellowshipping together. This is fellowship. This is intimacy. This isn't fast food. This is the long preparation that it takes to make the meal throughout the day. And it's enjoying one another's company and it's relationship and it's intimacy and fellowship and community. And it's beautiful, right? God wants to be with you. Isn't that kind of even hard to imagine? <laughs> Why would the God, the creator of the universe want to be with you? But yet he's standing outside the door, knocking. Now, I've often heard of this verse and thought of it as evangelism, right? You know, God's after those who, who don't know Christ, knocking at the door. But actually, if you look at the context, this is written to the church. These are people who already know God, but they've shut God out. They've closed the door on Christ and they've said, I don't need you. I'm self-reliant. I've got my health, my wealth, my, my fame. I'm good. I'm ambivalent in my works. Life doesn't seem to be going the way it is. And I'm kind of ignorant to that, but it's like, but I'm good. I don't need Jesus. I don't need God. And God lovingly invites us into relationship for him. You see, in the previous verses, God, Jesus had offered gold for their spiritual poverty. <laughs> He'd offered clothes for their spiritual nakedness. He'd offered salve for their spiritual blindness. But now Jesus offers something more. He doesn't just offer spiritual resources. He offers himself. An invitation to the presence of God. An invitation to know God and be known by God. You want to know how to grow in your zeal for God? You know God. You love God. Right? There's the promise of intimacy. It reminds me of a story um, with Christmas and actually name drawing, right? So actually I just uh, did name drawing with my in-laws this last week. True names for Christmas, I know. We're planning ahead, but you know, got to get those, got to get ready. And about, you know, my wife and I have been mar married going on nine years, but nine, nine years or so ago, um, drew names with my, bro my brother-in-law and the family, got his name, and honestly, I was not that excited. 
I didn't know him. Uh, I didn't know what to get him. It felt more like an obligation, like I'm supposed to get him a gift because it's Christmas and I have to do something. But I was more worried about if he would like the gift and I was insecure about it. And it was, it was, it was not a fun experience. Not looking forward to the name draw. Something different happened though this year. Drew the name draw and actually got my brother-in-law again this year, nine years later. And I'm excited to get him a gift. I can't wait. You know the only difference between then and now? I know my brother-in-law. I know him. I know what he likes, what he doesn't like. I have a relationship with him. We're friends, we're brothers. I love him. Like there's, there's, a, there's a beauty to that. Hopefully he's not watching right now and realizing that I drew his name, but you know, well, we'll, we'll move on. I know him. That knowledge has changed everything. Relationship has changed it. The same thing is true for us in our relationship with God. The, 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 the church was going through the motions. They were buying the Christmas gifts. They were doing what they were supposed to do, but they didn't have any zeal behind it. They were lukewarm. They were apathetic. They were complacent. God is saying, I have so much more for you than this. It's about relationship with me, intimacy with me, pursue me. That's the way forward. Intimacy with Christ. The last verse as a promise to us to the one who conquers, the one who uh, is very similar to the language we've been using in previous weeks of the hupomeno, the one who has steadfast endurance, the one who patiently holds on to God and clings to him, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He's promising the way forward. Intimacy with me is a beautiful picture. And by the way, all the things that you're after in this life that you think that you want, they're actually greater in me and I win. <laughs> Read the rest of the book of Revelation. Look at chapter four in the great throne room description. This is a beautiful place to be. You want to be sitting next to him on his throne. It's an awesome place to be. All of that is there because of intimacy. Because he has conquered, therefore we can be conquerors. Again, we're not pulling ourselves by our bootstraps. We're not trying to do this on our own. Because of what Christ has done for us, we can receive it with a currency that we couldn't purchase ourselves. And we can have relationship with God. And that relationship was what drives the intimacy. It's what drives the zeal. It's what drives the energy and the passion and gets rid of the apathy. So let me close with this. What can we learn from the church of Laodicea? <laughs> Don't let your pursuit of wealth, of health, <laughs> of power keep you from knowing God, the greatest gift. God is outside the door. He's knocking. The only real question is, will you let him in? Let's pray. Father, we thank you <laughs> that you pursue us. Lord, I confess, <laughs> I confess that I grow complacent. Lord, that I trust in the wrong things, that my walk with you is lukewarm, and I'm often ignorant to the truth. God, I thank you for the work that Christ has done, that he has conquered sin and death, that he has allowed there to be a relationship between us, that we might be able to pursue you. And Lord, I thank you that you provide intimacy with you, fellowship, relationship. Lord, I thank you that you are patiently waiting outside the door for us to open it. That's humbling to me. Lord, you are good. You are worthy of praise. We stand in awe that you would desire to be in relationship with us. May that, may your presence drive us to be reliant upon you, to look to you, and to have our hearts be engaged to know you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.